Hello, everybody. This is Aaron Good, and you're listening to the American Exception Podcast. Today's episode is very special to me personally. It's a tribute to Peter Dale Scott, which took place in a class I taught in early 2020 at a Quaker high school. This class featured not just Peter Dale Scott, but also his closest friend, Daniel Ellsberg, the man who leaked the Pentagon Papers and went on to write two great memoirs, Secrets about the Pentagon Papers and the Doomsday Machine about his time working on U.S. nuclear policy. He's also been a great activist for peace ever since he leaked the Pentagon Papers. Additionally, we were joined by Joshua Oppenheimer, the documentary film director whose two critically acclaimed features on Indonesia, The Act of Killing and The Look of Silence, were each nominated for Best Documentary Oscars. Oscars that they should have won if you ask me. Finally, we were also joined by Peter's former student, friend, and collaborator, Freeman Ng. Freeman conducted a series of interviews with Peter in which they read and discussed Peter's long poem, Coming to Jakarta. These conversations later were published in the book Poetry and Terror. Freeman is a very humble guy, and sometime back he asked that he be taken out of the audio of the class meeting. I have elected to leave him in the audio because I think he added to the discussion and because if all goes well, we will revisit those poetry and terror interviews on this podcast. A little bit of backstory. What you're about to hear is from my Peace Studies of the American Century class. I established this class with input from Peter Kuznick and Oliver Stone. A big part of the course included their documentary series and the book, the Untold History of the United States. They each also visited the class last year on separate occasions. Those class meetings should also appear here on Covert Action Bulletin in future episodes. Today's tribute to and poetry reading from Peter Dale Scott is, as I said, very special to me personally. Peter did not know that I was trying to get anyone else into the class and as you will hear, he almost declined the invitation so he could work on one of his book projects. I'll let you hear the rest for yourself, but suffice it to say that thanks to Peter and Dan and Joshua, this whole event was one of the best things I've ever been able to put together. After the audio from the class ends, there's a postscript featuring two of Peter's collaborators and admirers, Ben Howard and me. So stick around at the end if you want to hear that discussion. Lastly, before we go to the audio from the class itself, I want to give you some historical background. Specifically, I want to talk about Indonesia and the overthrow of Ahmed Sukarno. So Sukarno was the great Indonesian statesman after World War II who got the country to be independent from the Dutch and also was an independent nationalist. He's the person who popularized the term third world, meaning that Indonesia did not want to be part of the first world, i.e. the West led by the U.S. and Britain and the other former colonial powers. And he didn't want to be part of the second world, which was the communist nations of Soviet Union, China, and Eastern Europe. To that end, he tried to organize other countries in the formerly colonized world for a conference in Bandung, a famous conference where other people who weren't aligned with the West or with the communist countries were trying to fight for real independence from colonial rule. 
Malcolm X was there and he was heartened by this conference. It was an inspiration for him. And also Zhou Enlai from People's Republic of China went there, even though, of course, China was part of the communist world, but they gave their support to these countries and wanted to support this movement for independence and kind of independent development for these countries. They supported their nationalist aspirations. On the way to the conference, Zhou Enlai was almost killed by a plot involving the heroin trafficking uh, airline, CIA or KMT, proprietary uh, civil air transport. Right, Somebody from uh, that outfit tried to put a bomb on a plane called the Kashmir Princess and it blew up. But luckily for Zhou Enlai, he switched planes and so a number of people died, but not Zhou Enlai. So Sukarno's also famous for saying, go to hell with your aid, which he directed at the United States because he recognized that the aid that was offered to countries from the U.S. came with strings attached that ultimately made it beneficial for the U.S. to give, quote unquote, aid to these countries and not the recipients. So there were assassination plots against Sukarno for his you know, nationalist leanings. And they even went as far as to make a porno movie where they had some guy dress up in a mask that was made to look like Sukarno. And he was videotaped having sex with some blonde woman. And the idea was that they were going to say, this blonde woman was a Soviet agent. And look at Sukarno. He's, he's fornicating with her. Can you believe it? Scandal, scandal. They actually made the video, as I understand it, but didn't distribute it. Because for whatever reason, it didn't really have the desired effect among the Indonesian people when they sort of gave it a test run. So under the Eisenhower administration, CIA tried to foment a rebellion of some kind against Sukarno. And this was in 1957 and 1958. On some of the outer islands, they organized and armed and funded these uh, rebel groups. Uh, and the Indonesian military had to come and put down this rebellion. CIA denied having anything to do with it, and they denied it and denied it until finally one day uh, a pilot named Alan Pope crashed and it revealed that the CIA was involved and it was pretty clear he was working for the CIA. So that made the U.S. look not for the last time like liars about their covert operations. So Eisenhower leaves office, JFK takes over and he is much more kindly disposed towards third world nationalists. When he was in Congress as a congressman and senator, he had condemned the French wars in Algeria and in Vietnam and this did not endear him with people like John Foster Dulles and other people who were proponents of American imperialism, always couched in terms of democracy and liberty. But Kennedy had a different take on this. So he had his brother, Robert Kennedy, uh, negotiate with the Indonesians to get Alan Pope sent back home. And Kennedy himself, as president, was helpful to Sukarno, and he even assisted with Sukarno's efforts to nationalize certain businesses uh, that were, uh, you know, more or less exploitative in terms of their taking Indonesian resources and not giving the country much in return. So JFK had a very different approach. By 1963, Sukarno was building a big mansion for JFK's visit. Sukarno actually visited the U.S. under JFK. And there's a story that Greg Polgrain recounts of Sukarno being in the White House with the president and Jackie Kennedy, and they all retreat to the bedroom 
because Kennedy tells Sukarno, that's the only place that the CIA wasn't eavesdropping on them. That gives you a sense of what JFK thought of his own intelligence agencies. Whenever JFK is killed later, a U.S. ambassador, I believe, is talking, or maybe it's Sukarno's biographer, is talking to Sukarno, and he asks, Sukarno asks plaintively, why did they kill JFK? So he understood what had happened. Under LBJ, there's this terrible series of events in Indonesia in 1965 called uh, G30S, or the Gestapo, which means like 30th September movement. And it's still a convoluted and mysterious set of events. But what ends up happening is that some left-wing generals are persuaded that these right, these uh, centrist generals who are actually loyal to Sukarno are being bought off by the CIA or something like that, and they're about to stage a coup. And so these generals in the middle who are still loyal to Sukarno, just like the ones on the left, they stage a plot to kidnap the generals that they think are disloyal, but they were only supposed to be kidnapped. Instead, they get killed. They get murdered. And at that point, these right-wing generals led by Suharto strike back and they arrest and or kill the left-wing plotters. And that's just a prelude to this horrible, horrible massacre where the PKI, the, the Communist Party of Indonesia, which was part of Sukarno's constituency, they are rounded up and killed. And it's not known how many were killed, 500,000 to maybe up as many as 3 million. They couldn't keep track of it. And they were uh, tortured to death, essentially, killed in really brutal ways. And they were thrown in rivers and impaled with bamboo so that they would sort of float up or something like that. And the rivers were choked with uh, dead bodies at certain points and just unimaginable for the greatest massacre since the end of World War II. And the outcome is that you have a U.S. Uh, client state in Indonesia now. You don't have this independent guy anymore. You have somebody who is a you know puppet of the United States. And the American press mostly ignored this to the extent they reported on it. It was like the New York Times, I believe it was James Reston, who called it a gleam of light in Asia. The gleam of light being the takeover of Suharto and the accompanying slaughter of at least 500,000 people. Very good for the U.S. corporation Freeport Sulphur. They'd lost some of their holdings in Cuba, and yet they weren't really agitating to get back into Cuba for strange reasons. But it kind of becomes clear why. It's because they are interested more in Indonesia. And the Freeport McMoran Mine, which is on West Papua, which used to be called West Irian, it's the world's biggest gold mine still to this day. And it wasn't until Suharto took over that it began to be exploited and mined, even though Alan Dulles knew about it going all the way back to the 30s, as I understand it. But he never elected to tell John Kennedy. So Sukarno didn't know about it. Kennedy didn't know about it. Dulles did. And that's probably pretty significant. How does this relate to Peter Dale Scott in today's episode? Well, Peter was one of the first people to really look at this episode. He did, you know, the earliest work. He's probably the first person to figure out that the U.S. was behind it. He had a book that I believe he wrote in the late 70s or early 80s, a manuscript that has been lost. So I don't, it's a, this is pretty tragic in my opinion. 
But he did write a 1985 article in Pacific Affairs, the summer of 1985, called The United States and the Overthrow of Sukarno. One of the things Peter points out is that this payment system of for bribes, the CIA used to run through Lockheed Martin in a congressional investigation around the t- as part of the church committee, I believe, led by Jack Blum, if I recall correctly, they uncovered this whole scandalous system wherein Lockheed, you know, military industrial complex firm would pay people lots of money in countries on behalf of the CIA for reasons, you know, that the CIA, you know, thought were worthy of throwing a bunch of money at. So Peter Dale Scott figured out that this payment system was operant in Indonesia and that shortly before the G30, you know, months before the G30S event, the massacre, the big massacre, the CIA's Lockheed bribery system had shifted its recipient from a backer of Sukarno to a backer of Suharto. And this was a tell that they were making a move and that Suharto was their man. The CIA has never come clean about that. Ralph McGahee wrote in an article, maybe for Covert Action years ago, that he was for a time the custodian of a top secret study on Indonesia and that that study was important to the agency because Indonesia was considered a model for covert action going forward. In fact, when the coup against Allende happens in 1973, there's graffiti on the walls before the denouement of the whole thing saying Jakarta is coming or Jakarta se acerca in Spanish, meaning, if I need to spell it out, that you better get on the right side because there's going to be a move. And if you're not on the right side, then you're going to be among the slaughtered. So Peter wrote this article covering the coup better than any American scholar had. It only got published in a small, I believe Pacific Affairs is a Canadian journal, and it's a small journal. So it, it didn't get a lot of press. And Peter became very depressed about this because this is very important historically, and it's being ignored. And he started to have something of a breakdown. And he felt that none of his work was really accomplishing anything. And he didn't know what to do. And because he was a poetry professor and a poet, and his, even his father was a famous poet, he started to write poetry to try to process what was happening or what he was thinking, or what he was going through. This uh, writing during this time period becomes the epic long poem that's published as a book, Coming to Jakarta, which is a reference to Jakarta say acerca. Jakarta is coming. Only he's saying coming to Jakarta. So it's a meditation of, among other things, trying to confront things that you might have suppressed personally, uh, that you might have suppressed because they are too painful to deal with, and how that kind of suppression is a metaphor for many of the things that we do in our civilization. That our civilization, whatever its good points are, there are also, there's also this dark side, uh, this sort of exploitation and, and violence that upholds the order that, that we live under, and that we oftentimes suppress this. And so Peter's approach is to try to deal with this and capture these ideas in poetry. And so that's what we're talking about during this class. I hope that background allows the tribute to Peter and the poetry reading to make more sense. And uh, that's the last thing I'll say about this for now.
we have Peter Dale Scott today. We're going to be talking about coming to Jakarta, his poem. And we also have three very special guests. Um, Freeman Ng is here. I hope I pronounced your name right. Uh, the illustrious Daniel Ellsberg. And uh, Peter, I don't think that you noticed this, but Joshua Oppenheimer is also here on the call. Um, and really? he can't stay. He can't well, stay he's from in Denmark or somewhere. Josh, where are you? I've never, never talked to you. It's afraid, uh, no, and that's not true. We had a phone call. I, I'm in the far north of Norway, in the Arctic, uh, on the Arctic Ocean, actually. And Aaron wrote me saying that, asking if I would like to meet you in person. And I was so, you know, not in person, because we're not in person, but to see you. And so I'm <laughs> this is the way of meeting in person. I'm, I'm so happy to meet you, uh, Peter, as, as I've told you, and I'll tell the class briefly, I'm in the middle of, I'm unfortunately in the middle of a meeting with a composer about a musical film that we're working on, but I left so that I could, for a few minutes, so that I could just say hello. And I just, I'm just so happy to meet you and no, to tell right, the class right. that I, I made two films about the events that so haunted and inspired, if that's the right word, the poem coming to Jakarta. And my films were very much inspired by that poem. The first film, The Act of Killing, uh, I came out in 2013 and the second one in 2015, The Look of Silence. But I've been, I'm a, the deepest sort of fan and honored to be in your company and, and to meet you in person. Well, this is an honor likewise for me. You know, in my poem, I said, I'm writing something, I say, even though this is not going to make any difference, I'm going to write it anyway. And then you said your films were inspired by my poem, and your films certainly made a huge difference in Indonesia. They broke the code of silence about the massacre in Indonesia. The first one was banned in Indonesia, but of course people have internet, so they were able to see it anyway. And the second one provoked official discussions, the first ever, about what had happened in this country back in 1965. So it's hard to, I can't think of another film that has had as much influence on a country's destiny as yours. And if my poem helped you in your process of making the films, that makes me reconsider my whole sense of whether or not it's worth writing poetry. And I, and uh, well, I, in Poetry and Terror, I talk about this paradox that the powerless became powerful. And film, if I was young, I'd start all over again in film, I think. Well, it, it, it definitely, I remember actually I was considering a few different projects and the earliest material from uh, the, the, what became actually, what actually ended up in the, look, in the look of silence, but the process that grew into shooting the act of killing, I'd filmed, but it was so singular and the, and the kind of overarching net, it was so specific to, to the banks of this one river in North Sumatra for all I understood initially, where 10,500 people were killed. It was so specific to that, that I had trouble understanding how I would then dedicate the next years of my life. It became uh, the next 
11 years of my life working on those two films. But then I first I read your essay, your kind of analysis of what happened in in Indonesia. And then I and that that then I thought, how would I render that artistically? Or how would I make a statement that embodies my feelings about this? And then I came upon your poem. And I was considering another project actually in the United States, also a what could have been very worthwhile. But your poem just captured my heart in a way that forced me to listen to the voices in my head, the voices of my friends in North Sumatra who were saying, please don't give this up, please pursue it. And your poem kind of provided me its lyricism, its fervor, its moral clarity and its beauty and terror forced me to sort of not that forced me it, it showed me how a work in another medium could could successfully sort of immersively force one to look at really the 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 sort of dark underbelly of what we are and the system that sustains us and I thought that's what I must do in a film and I must listen to those friends from these villages in the plantation belt of North Sumatra, where I started these two films yeah. and return and focus on that. So it, it is no exaggeration to say your poem is what gave me the aesthetic clarity as a filmmaker to, to, to make those two films. And I, I don't know that I would have without them, which is why I always jump at the opportunity to engage with you. And this one was no different. So speaking of the dark underbelly of the culture that makes us what we are. Um, there's one episode in the first film, which uh, is emblematic for me of this whole paradox that culture is supposed to make us better, but our, our culture is in some ways fundamentally corrupt. And it's when you, well, it's the, the, the anti-hero of the first movie, the guy who's so proud of having killed all these people that he wants to make a movie about it with you. And he boasts about how he learned how to kill somebody by pulling a piano wire around mm -hmm. their throat. And he, he's proudly showing you where it happened. Well, you know, he got that proud of an American movie that was being distributed free of charge in Indonesia uh, by the USIA, the Information Agency, on the principle that we have a great culture that we must share with the rest of the world so they can be wonderful just like us. And they learn how to be mass killers from our culture. And that is so such an emblematic anecdote for the whole of my, this poem, you know, is just one of three. Uh, the trilogy, Seculum, is about our culture and its dark underbelly and where does that leave us? Um, Anyway, Josh, what a thrill. I'm, I almost said no to this invitation because I'm writing a book, but to have Dan and Freeman and, and you. Um, Dan, have you ever talked to Josh uh, before? No, I just, if I may just interject, Josh, I'm so happy to have the chance to tell you more or less to your face that uh, 
your films are just masterpieces. They're unique, they're unprecedented, there's nothing like them, and I really want to thank you for them. Uh, listening to Peter here, as a friend who's been with Peter through this process, no poet could be more gratified by a response, I can't imagine, uh, to a poem. And you've really, uh, I want to thank you so much for that. As a matter of fact, after this amazing week we've just had, with once again, as at Charlottesville, as at various other massacres, we're hearing from our leaders, this is not who we are. This is not America. <laughs> uh, you, Joshua, held up a mirror, I think, to humanity, not just Indonesians. And you have to say, uh, this is part of who we are. This is who a lot of us are. And we can transcend it, but uh, this, is, this is what we have to deal with. And uh, I, I just hope your films get seen forever as much as possible. Thank oh, well, you. Yeah, if I could just add to it. No, let me say something, Josh, and then I'll give you the last word. Um, I, you know, Josh's films are also part of who we are, that America has produced the best and the worst, and it has produced the spirit of autocritique, of self-criticism, and particularly for Indonesia now is very much under attack from its version of Trumpism. Uh, these hard right uh, Sharia Muslims funded from Saudi Arabia, whom in turn is really funded by our dependence on oil as we destroy the climate. Um, and uh, your films, I think, are going to last as a way of reminding Indonesia that they were once a tolerant culture and that that is what they should aim at being. So I predict there's going to be a long shelf life for your films in Indonesia as a way of keeping them honest. And, and, and I can't think of any other films ever that I have seen <laughs> that have had the same influence for good. There have been a couple that have had an influence for evil, but... Um, an influence for good. There, there's none like your films. Well, thank you. And I, I just want to say, first, I, I, to, that what what you describe in the in the in the Indonesia having been a different place. It was a very different place before the genocide, of course. But even now, even if you watch the films, you'll see women. Most of the women, I think, it will be without head coverings. And now, just a few years later the kind of pop religious populism has made it has intimidated all those women some of whom are friends of mine uh to have to wear a head covering when they go out so you just see the the cultural shutting down there's nothing wrong with head coverings when it's what one wants to wear of course but when it's when people are when space is closing in the same way that religious fundamentalism in the united states has has fuels the same populism that, that we've seen in insurrection this week, um, this past week. It's, it's, it's frightening. And, and Dan, I just, I'm astonished that I have this chance to meet you because you are in a way the ultimate role model for exactly what this country needs and has been needing ever since you did what what you did. And I just, it is astonishing that in this week of all weeks, I get to meet you. So I want to thank Aaron and I want to thank Freeman also for your work in general and with 
Peter, it's, it's, this is quite, this was kind of an opportunity that I, I couldn't pass up when Aaron wrote me and said that I would get to meet the three of you just now. So I'd like to make a comment that this week and of the events of what happened last Wednesday on the 6th, uh, make this what's happening now very timely because if we want to talk about the two sides of America, it's never been acted out as vividly on camera uh, as it was uh, last, uh, what is it, eight days ago now. And uh, so this whole question, uh, how we're going to address that in America is related to the themes I'm trying to talk about in the poem about, uh, and what the section I'm going to read when this dialogue is over, um, about there being two sides in ourselves and that each of us carry, in a sense, the, uh, the stigma or the mark of Cain, that we are we're trying to be good, but we continuously fail in being good. Mm. But the consciousness that we are both the, the person who's trying and the person who's failing, is true of us, it's true of our country. And uh, we, the way to begin to heal our country, I think, and we need desperately to focus on healing as well as on changing. Those are two conflicting goals, but they, they have to both to be done, is that we will be, do a better job of healing the great split in the country as we become more skilled at dealing with the splits in ourselves. I don't know if that's clear on a quick, Something like that. That's the book I'm writing now, by the way, which is a book about everything. The book that almost made me say no to this extraordinary chance to have Freeman and Dan and you, Josh, whom I'm seeing for the first time, uh, all, all talking at once together. It's wonderful. And Peter, um, you're going to read from Coming to Jakarta. That, that's yeah. correct. I'm going to read, we prearranged that I would read section three, part three, section two, but it, 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 it's such a segue from what we've been talking about that it's, per, it's the perfect section to uh, move into the poem from our discussion. So this is part three, uh, section two. <clears throat> to have learned from terror to see oneself as part of the enemy, can be a reassurance. Whatever it is arises within us, fear, a matter of self-protection, quick wits in the urban streets where my parents, for socialist reasons, lived in the 30s. It was, wasn't a slum exactly, but it was very working class. And my toys, reluctantly shared, seemed always to disappear except when I was conducted to play alone on the lawn of the nearby campus or dressed up in polished gaiters with a button hook to go have tea with Graham or Christopher and his maiden aunts. By the way, that's Christopher Plummer who became a famous actor on Broadway and, and in Hollywood. Uh, and I met him once at halftime at a play that he was giving and he said, yes, he became an actor because he didn't have good enough grades to get into McGill. So <laughs> by failing to get into McGill, he became famous. 
uh, Christopher and his maiden aunts at the edge of Mount Royal. There were in our house so many meetings, but when my parents hugged, I would get between their knees to be in the carriage. I used to be sent out to play in the snow till lunch or until the pack of boys took my sled. I recall much blood the time I hit Babs, whom I remember as so gentle, or the broken window as black as the lake's bottom after I had been chased one more time behind our insecure board fence and in response to the rain of catcalls and heavy gravel, I, needing to kill someone, heaved a primeval rock high across the back lane and into the very nest of the office typewriter in the flat of Professor Sullivan, who in the post-war years when he taught me calculus amused the whole class by retelling the tale. After all, it was not he who had to bear the lasting damage of that jangling cord from the struck keys I could never replicate on this machine, certainly not on this machine. What I am talking about, I lack, therefore I am. However childish, and imperfectly remembered is ontological, has to do with the rare times one trembles in bed from terror out of love, one will completely dissolve into this other person. Or when looking for encouragement to the familiar repetitions of the stars, one recognizes whatever that noble movement, you and I are not designed for this world we now live in. Peter, would you like to take some questions yes, now? I think that Andrew, Andrew has a question that I think is very relevant to the, pa the passage that you just read. So, Andrew, if you could. Uh, I know reflecting on ask. the poem, you mentioned that writing it was like a healing process for you. I think the wording you used, like was the beginning of that process was you first had to realize you were sick. Could you just elaborate more on that healing and like the, the process itself of healing from that? Yes, well, as, as Aaron said, this is a very good section to illustrate because uh, in the readings you were given, you were given the last section of part two. This is essentially the beginning of part three. There's a ceremonial thing. This is the beginning of part three. And I have just realized something at the end of part two, which is vital to the structure of the poem as a whole, and it was, it was both sickening and healing at the same time that I had written the whole of part two about this is wrong about America, this is warlike about America, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
And I get to the point that there were professors that I actually had contact with, like this Guy Pauker, who was one of the major instigators of the massacre and was not only encouraging the generals to be like, not kill like Nazis, but actually reproved them publicly in print in before, just before the massacre, reproved them for not massacring. And I mean, so now I'm blaming professors. And then suddenly in parts, part seven, part 18 and section 18 of part two, I realized, hey, I'm one of those professors. I was part of the University of California. That doesn't make me guilty. But I wrote a whole book in you know, an article in 1975 about the massacre, one of the first articles ever written, by the way, about the massacre in English. Um, and uh, there, I um, commented on somebody else who had blamed the University of California. And I said, no, teaching people economics isn't like teaching people how to kill. But I had to realize in writing it, the actual writing of that section that the other man had been right and I had been wrong and I too was part of the problem. And now, as I say at the beginning of part three, to realize that, to have learned from terror to see oneself as part of the enemy can be a reassurance because if I'm part of the enemy, then the enemy is something that I can change. And that's an empowering thing. I was both sickened by this thought, my God, I, 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 I was part of the problem, but that was empowering. And what I needed was to have a sense that I could do something. So the whole poem is like that. If you go back to the very, it took about six sections, four sections for me to say, oh, this is gonna be a poem about terror. At first I was just falling to pieces. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't even know why I was writing. I certainly wasn't writing in order to heal, just writing. I, I, was, I was going mad. But after I said, I see there's going to be a poem about terror, I calmed down. No, I, I've got something to write about. And then two sections later, I see what I have to do. And I start writing about the terror of Indonesia. And thank goodness, now we're getting some, a, a purchase on what's wrong here. And uh, I'm pages and pages and pages now to get up, seeing myself as part of the enemy. And the last part of the poem is about learning empowerment. And I'm so glad Dan is still here because in part five, I talk about how Dan, Dan is famous, of course, for releasing the Pentagon Papers but he's also, and, and I don't want to say the wrong thing here, I don't want to diminish the importance of his having released the papers. A, it helped end a war, and B, helped it bring down a very warlike president. So you, you can't say that was a small thing to do. But I want to match it. That's what I'd call a yang act, a, a conscious act. And to, but he also did this yin thing, which was symbolic. It was also quite risky. He sat on the railway tracks at Rocky Flats, where they made, they helped make atomic bombs. And uh, he sat there with Allen Ginsberg. And if I understand this rightly, Dan, 
uh, there were other people sitting there, but when the train came around the corner, suddenly there was only one or two. There was Dan and maybe Alan too, but almost everybody else skedaddled. And that to me is a very important example of, of power. And, you know, the, the end of my second poem, Listening to the Candle, which is, there are three poems in all, the end of the second poem, at the same point in the poem, Brian Wilson, a friend of Dan's and mine, did the same thing very close to where I am now, a place called Port Chicago, where they were shipping arms to the Contras in Nicaragua. He sat on the tracks, and in Dan's case, the trains stopped and in Brian's case, they brought, the engineer had been told there's a terrorist sitting on the track. The train didn't slow down, it speeded up. And Brian lost both his, egg, his legs, his head, his, his skull was split open. People could see his brain. Um, so as I say, this is a risky thing to do, but if you want to change history, you have to be prepared to take risks. And Dan took enormous risks with both of these actions he did and with other actions he's done. And uh, so power is, Hannah Arendt distinguishes between force and power, Gandhian power, truth power, satyagraha. That is what is within the reach of every one of us. And the other kind of power, force, uh, forcing people to wear uh, head coverings and that instead of liberating them to wear them or not wear them as they choose. Religion begins by liberation and it ends by enforcement. And that's part of the doubleness that we're talking about here. And I must learn to give short answers or there will only be two questions. So that's enough on that. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. So it's funny because some of the questions that we have have been kind of answered the, the question about Joshua Oppenheimer's films because it wasn't, I wasn't sure if he was going to come and it ended up that you all answered those uh, as better than I even could have hoped for. So, and you talked about Guy Pauker as well, which was another question. So I think that this is a fascinating episode uh, in the, in the poem that we haven't really talked about yet. So uh, Alonso, could you ask a, a question here? Could you explain how you think it was possible that you and Al McCoy could have driven an hour to talk to that X-Green Brave? Yes, well, just uh, I know you all know it, but I'm going to recapitulate for my own purposes. Uh, I had staying uh, Al McCoy, who wrote The Politics of Heroin. He was on his way to Laos to talk to people in Laos who were running the government and also running the opium trade and the heroin trade there, which paid for the Laotian army, which was the C one of the CIA's assets along with the Hmong army, both of which were supporting themselves primarily by opium and heroin. And I had been on a panel that spring, the year is 1971, which is actually the year that Dan leaked the Pentagon Papers. Is, isn't that right, Dan? Yes, it's when you leaked the Pentagon Papers. This would have been about two months later. I remembered this Green Beret. He said, yes, I saw them loading 
opium onto CIA planes. They may have been Vang Pao's uh, private air force. I don't know. But anyway, uh, I phoned him from my house and I said, we'd like to come and talk to you about it. Will you talk about it? And he said, yes. So the next morning we went down. There's an hour, it's 50 miles away, Alonzo. I'm not quite sure what your problem was. Do you want to clarify? Because we drove to East Palo Alto, which is the other side of the bay from here. It's about an hour's drive. And it turned out that by then, he wasn't going to talk to us. In fact, at the beginning, he wouldn't talk at all. He just put his fingers to his lips, took us down to his car, showed us this huge hole in the side of the MG, and there was, and then he said, look at the floorboards. The floorboards are wood. They're barely scorched. This was an implosive device. This is from my old unit. I can't talk to you. And your, I think your question was, how could you forget something like that? Is that right? Well, yeah. I don't know when I forgot it, but I certainly forgot it. And I forgot other episodes. There are a lot of episodes jammed into the very end of the poem, of which this is one, but only one, which other people have forgotten. Uh, you read the whole thing about my crazy phone calls with Gore Vidal, which were interrupted four times. And then Gore phoned Bob Silvers. Bob Silvers phoned me and told my phone was out of order. And meanwhile, I was using my phone to find other people. Pretty memorable, but I forgot that. And more importantly, Bob Silvers refused to believe it happened. I learned that or Paul Hoke, I said that same section, I, you know, give us our sound back, please. And suddenly there's a blast of sound in the telephone receiver. How could you forget that? I forgot it. Paul Hoke forgot it. I often couldn't get corroboration for these episodes. Now from Al, who had forgotten it, I got corroboration in the sense that the third edition of his great heavy political science textbook talks about this episode by quoting my poem. So that's as close as his memory gets, but it's an acknowledgement. That's, I have a whole chapter which you didn't read in uh, Poetry and Terror. Uh, Freeman wasn't thrilled that I put this chapter in because he really wanted it to focus on the poem itself. But I thought it was very important to analyze this phenomenon that wasn't what doesn't fit the world we live in, we suppress, we deny, we forget. Quite honestly, we're not liars if we say it didn't happen because we honestly don't remember. But that's the condition we're all living in. This is a very important question because the answer, if I can get it right, is also important that uh, I live in California. Uh, if I was really conscious of why I'm here, I'm here because Indian tribes were slaughtered, driven off their land, and, and posses encouraged by newspaper editorials went out and killed Indians for bounties. We were scalping, the whites were scalping at the end to just show that they had killed Indians. If, if I thought about that every day of my life, I, I, I don't know, I'd have another nervous breakdown. So I suppress it. I, in an odd way, I'm kind of mindful of it now. I've put it into poetry and prose, but I don't 
I normally I suppress it. Everybody, everybody achieves a kind of equilibrium in their mind by uh, living in the world that they can handle and manage. The idea that I was a witness to a terrorist act. Somebody was listening to my phone. I think probably really listening to his phone, but they overheard me. And the result was a bomb used to terrify this Green Beret into not talking to us. But being a witness to terrorism, I don't, I just can't fit that into the world. If I had fit that into the world I live in, I might have stopped writing, but I wanted to go on writing. So I, instead, I forgot. You had to do one or the other, I think. Does that answer your question? You can come back if you want to follow it more. It's very important. I think that's that's great, uh, Peter. And I, I, I found that a compelling story, and you write about it in American War Machine. And, yes, uh, yes. Let me pull this so, out. If you want to know the longest treatment of it, it's in this book, American War Machine. Yeah. When I was doing my PhD work, I got that book in the mail, and I read that book very closely, and I did not read my assigned readings very closely during that time period if that gives you a sense of what it was like for me to slog through graduate school. So it's a, it's a great, it's a great book. It takes rereading some sections, which are complex. The way that you work in that story has a poetic cast. Uh, the prose does even. So thanks for elaborating on that story again, which I know you've told before. So I think that before I take another question from the students, I'd like to hear from Freeman just briefly about how the, Poetry and Terror book came about. So the students have read some sections of that interspersed with sections of Coming to Jakarta, as I told you guys. And uh, I'd like to hear Freeman talk about how he entered into this whole conversation. Okay, well, um, I guess it started when I was a student of Peter's, uh, but in poetry. I, I took a poetry workshop class with him uh, in my uh, junior year, I guess. And... Um, and at the time, all we knew about him was that he wrote poetry. We, I thought probably the members of the workshop, probably none of us knew about his political writing or his political activities. Uh, but then after the class was over, a few years after it was over, uh, Coming to Jakarta came out. And so I picked it up because I was very interested in the poetry written by, you know, this former poetry professor of mine. Uh, and so I read Coming to Jakarta and the parts of it that I understood, I loved. I did not understand most of it, like practically all of it. So I called Peter up one day and I, I said, uh, so I just read Kamish Jakarta and I have a bunch of questions. Could I come by and ask you my questions? And he said, coming to Jakarta is my favorite subject these days. Sure, come on by. So we met in his office and um, I asked my questions and that was sort of the start of of my reconnecting with Peter after college. And, um, and so then we skipped forward many, many years and uh, I asked Peter if he wanted to do a series of video discussions about deep politics. Um, and so we began to, uh, to meet for that. And very quickly, I found myself, you know, once again, not understanding 90% of what he was talking about. We would have these video sessions 
And uh, I would ask a question and he would, I mean, I, and, then I would, and then I would just be lost. So I decided I need to find something easier to talk to him about. <laughs> um, I need to find something that I have a little better grip on. So I returned to coming to Jakarta and I asked him, well, how about if we also talk about coming to Jakarta? We can go, you know, section by section of the poem. And so we did that. And that's how really the whole thing started. It all started because um, of, of uh, how much I liked coming to Jakarta and how little I understood coming to Jakarta. And that's really all the credit I can claim is that, is that, is that not understanding a thing, I, you know, I was willing to, to ask questions. But if I could just add to that, Freeman, if you hadn't asked those questions, there wouldn't have been the book Poetry and Terror, because chapter one, which is half of the book, is just the text of those interviews as edited by me. That right. book, by the way, is dedicated to Dan Ellsberg. Uh, this is one of the questions from the class, I believe. Why dedicate it to Dan? Um, mostly because he's a model for how a, a, a human being from wherever they are can make a difference. And we all, I think, uh, the book I'm writing now, I'm talking about moreness. So we all have this quality to be more than we are. To be human is to want to be more than we are. And some people just want to be richer, which I think is an abuse of that power. Uh, but uh, Dan was a role model, but he was also very helpful in the book because he read the manuscript and he raised some questions that made me see that I hadn't gone deep enough in the manuscript. And the uh, chapters two and four, which are attempts to make sense out of this whole way of poem, uh, which I thought wasn't affecting reality, could inspire a film which definitely did affect reality. Um, and Dan uh, helped me to deepen the poem the book, excuse me, in, in that direction as well. So I just answered another of the questions, I think. Yes, that was jumping ahead a little bit, but that's actually perfect that you would answer that. I was hoping Dan could comment on coming to Jakarta and the significance of Peter dedicating the companion piece to him and how he feels he and Peter have influenced each other in their trajectories. Of course, it's a very great honor uh, to have that dedicated to me, and I think it's a timeless work, and uh, I love that. Uh, Peter, you know, worked on briefs or analyses of the papers for my trial uh, before I'd ever met him, and uh, so I, I owe him that from the beginning, and he's been on that from the beginning, but he's become my closest friend here. We've had many hours and I've, as I've learned and uh, no, I've, there's no one I've learned more from. I, uh, likewise, Dan, likewise. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the, in connection with Indonesia, uh, he mentioned, you know, that I, I was a model for revealing something, but of course, earlier than that, he could, he could have said that I am an example of the possibility of change in a life and in a perspective. Because of course I was part of this 
um, apparatus, this imperial apparatus, uh, for years, for a decade or so before I copied the Pentagon Papers. Now, the massacre in Indonesia was not something I had signed up for and that I wanted to be associated with in any way. I was in Vietnam when it actually happened, working in the State Department, uh, evaluating pacification. When I, I learned the news of this, and I always wanted to be reassured, let's say, that the U.S. had not run this, uh, that this was not a U.S. operation. Of course, the U.S. denied any connection with it. So later, I can't remember, I think it was around before the Pentagon Papers came out, because I never saw him afterwards, I was talking with a more or less colleague, Assistant Secretary of Defense uh, of State, uh, William Bundy, the brother of McGeorge Bundy. Uh, he had been Assistant Secretary of Defense when I first started walking, working for the Pentagon. But uh, uh, I asked him then in about 66, no, no, I said 66, but it would be uh, 67 or 68, 69, something like that. The papers came out in 71. Uh, if we had had anything to do with that massacre. And he reassured me in a very convincing way uh, that we hadn't because he put it this way. It was, it was kind of a, an admission. Uh, admission, there's a word for this, when you admit something with, uh, that you didn't entirely intend to, to convey. Namely, um, he said, we lucked out. He described the massacre as lucky. He said, it worked because we didn't have anything to do with it. If we'd been working with it, it would have been all mucked up and uh, we would have been involved forever and would have been a mess. And they went on ahead on their own. So he showed no, uh, con not only not remorse because we weren't involved, but no condemnation. So here was something he was not taking credit for. And that was a convincing, uh, you know, person who thought that way uh, was convincing that we hadn't, to me, that we hadn't done anything. I was talking to him, you know, not as a journalist or as an outsider. Uh, I had essentially the clearances he had. And, you know, we were talking on that basis. So I was convinced by it. Now, later, Guy Pauker, he mentioned, was a colleague, uh, earlier, actually, Guy Pauker was a colleague of mine at RAND, <clears throat> the Social Science Department. And that's a long story. But he took credit for having encouraged, not just in Indonesia, but everywhere, a lot of places, military takeovers, because they were the most modernized, professionalized, unified, nationalistic, groups in these underdeveloped nations. And he had encouraged us. CIA had taken him on as a consultant. He'd lectured about it to various stations and various people in CIA. And then later he said, again, kind of disarmingly, it was a mistake. It didn't work. They didn't do, uh, you know, as well as he had thought they might. Now, in the case that Peter mentions, uh, he had actually, at first he was mad at them because they wouldn't do what he thought they should do, show the, the um, determination and ruthlessness and competence of the Night of the Long Knives or, uh, you know, uh, the Holocaust in general. He didn't say the Holocaust, but I, I think he may even have mentioned the Night of the Long Knives where they, where they purged uh, the brown shirts uh, from the Nazi party, killed many of them. Uh, the Night of the Long Knives. Yeah. Uh, killed many of them ruthlessly. That's that's the way to do it. So that was, uh, I'd say, 
I didn't deal with him directly on that, but I had a lot of dealings with him otherwise. So I had been part of this apparatus. So when Peter's article came out, which still to me is one of the great pieces of investigative scholarship or journalist, you know, Gareth Porter calls himself an investigative historian. And Peter is a, something, an investigative, if not a historian, in this case was a work of history, terrific. And it showed the US involvement uh, very closely. And it led me to ask some questions which were evaded by people like Bill Colby of the CIA. I won't go into all that. But it absolutely, uh, knowing that, that we had been involved, for example, I at one point was just unwilling to shake the hand of Bill Colby, who had known of all this and been involved in, it, in the CIA at that time. A small thing, but it surprised him at the time. So this revealed to me, and I'll just say, I've forever harangued Peter and harassed him that the poem must be published with that article to reveal, you know, uh, uh, to end. Reason is dedicated. You you insisted that I do this book. It's true. Yeah, and, but that the that the article had to be included because it explains what's going on and explains the U.S. role. So I still want to refer all of you if they haven't read it already, they must read that article. It's and, chapter five of poetry and terror. Oh, the article is in there. Is in yes, after all. You, I, I fulfilled your your insistent demand. Yes, but. I'm still frustrated, Peter, because the whole poem is not, and you go line by line, but I wanted that article to be for somebody who had the whole poem, but presumably they have the poem. Is that the idea? Well, yes. I, 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 all we got out of New Directions was their agreement to make a ebook out of the poem so that people can read the poetry and terror and have the ebook book uh, yeah. in their screen. Which, by the way, is very good because I, when I read three two, you can search an ebook in a way you can't search a book. I um, I have poetry and terror up, and while I'm at it, Dan, I want to add a couple of anecdotes to what you were saying. One is, will you agree that the first time I said that I thought America would be involved in the massacre, we didn't know each other, we barely knew each other then, and I believe you said to me. Peter, I was at the Baguio conference in the Philippines, and we were talking about what America was doing. And I can assure you that uh, when people talked about Indonesia, they said, it's over. We, we've lost control. We have to write off Indonesia. And then years later, <clears throat> long after the discussion, it turned out there was a secret session at Baguio on Indonesia and it was the opposite of the cover story. They were, in fact, talking about what they were going to do uh, about the problem of Sukarno. And the other anecdote, well, two, two more anecdotes and then a bit of the book that's relevant. Um, out of all these years, one person phoned me, who had one person who had been in power and being part of the problem then in a big way, phoned me not to apologize, but to try to vindicate himself. And that was Bill Bundy. I was uh, having Sunday breakfast and the phone rang and it was Bill Bundy and we talked for an hour and he was trying to explain why 
uh, America had gone into Vietnam. And the part of it I remember most vividly is that uh, he said to me, you quote Bernard Fall as a critic of the war, uh, which is true, I do, particularly in Laos. He, he was, uh, I'm known for what I said about Laos, but it was really just repeating a lot of it, what uh, Bernard Fall revealed. Uh, he said, you should know that Bernard Fall came to us and said, be sure that you fight in Vietnam, which was kind of a shock to me. Um, but I suppose Bernard Fall, what was he, a Catholic? He was worried about the fate of the Catholics. There's always two sides to every war, even the worst wars, there's going to be some other side to it. And finally, apropos of the question of whether it was a luck, they lucked out, I'm going, to, I'm going to read a paragraph that you from Poetry and Terror. To have sanctioned the Indonesian massacre of 1965 is unspeakable. It is unspeakable that at the time, McGeorge Bundy in the White House, that's Bill Bundy's brother, told LBJ that the massacre, which he chose to refer to as events in Indonesia since the abortive September 30th coup, close quote, was, and this is quoting me, George Bundy, a striking vindication of US policy, close quote. And you know, my blood doesn't literally run cold, but it almost runs cold that somebody could look at the massacre of maybe a million people, the BBC says three million people, and often in the, in, because they, they weren't going to use that many bullets. They were very crude ways of massacring, extremely painful ways of massacring. And to look at that and say, yes, that justifies what we've done. Or as James Rester actually wrote in the New, New York Times, talking about the massacre, a gleam of light in Asia. They looked at it and they said, great. They looked at it and said, wonderful. Ah, yes, my blood is almost running cold when I say this. Okay, Sarah, your second question about deep politics. Uh, I think that would be a good one to close on. Okay, um, so in coming to Jakarta and prose writing, you describe like the deep internal repression in tandem with deep politics in the deep state. But how might more people come to such radical acceptance and understanding of their role um, in the world and what can be done about it? I can only discuss how it happened for me. And um, it really, uh, yes, I didn't really prepare. It's a very important question and it's so existential. I'm having to go deep into myself to remember. Originally, I talked about parapolitics in my, my first book, uh, uh, the, the, the War Conspiracy. It came out twice. In 72, it came out. I hadn't met Dan. And there's one chapter that I'll never repeat because I didn't actually accuse Dan of anything wrong, but I was uh, talking about how the pen, pen I still re 
still believe this in a way. It doesn't it doesn't implicate Dan at all. But one reason the papers came out in the Times Random is that by then, the people who were worried about the U.S. economy and the U.S. dollar realized that America could not go on fighting the way it was fighting anymore. They had to scale back. And so it was very useful to them that the Pentagon Papers came back. And I wrote about parapolitics, which is essentially... Um, politics where uh, accountability is co consciously diminished. You do something, but you don't boast that you did it. You try to conceal the fact that you did it. But by the time I wrote my book, Deep Politics and the Deaths of JFK, I realized that a lot of what happens is not happened by design. It just happens. Now, and I gave the example of the U.S. using the mafia in Italy after World War II. They brought over a bunch of American mafiosi. They said, we're deporting these people. They brought them to Italy, and they, they sort of ran Italy out of the um, office of AMGOT. And the man, the head of, that's the Allied military government, and the man who was running it was a man called Charles Poletti, who, who had worked with Tammany Hall in America. He was a democratic politician. He had been the deputy governor of New York State, um, very used to working with mafiosi to control things, and they used them in Italy. What they didn't intend was that the mafia became so powerful in Italy that they, for, for decades, they were getting their, they were corrupting the politicians and murdering the politicians that they didn't like. And when the Italian government finally tried to crack down on them, um, they famously blew up, they, 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 they blew up the car when it was en route of the man who was running the thing. So the mafia had become part of the system in Italy, which is a symbol for what's wrong generally, wasn't intended that that would happen. It just happened. So that's deep politics. Now, in terms of me, I guess it was writing the poem and the two things developed together, uh, writing about what was deep in our civilization and particularly in American foreign policy. Uh, it led to this part two, three, two that I read to you an awareness of a depth in me that I had not been aware of. That was my personal route. And I can't say this is, this is any good for anyone else. But I think, you know, Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. If you can learn to examine your life in a way in which you, you first of all, you should give yourself credit for what's good in you. I think there was a lot of a lot of anxiety in the world now because the world has gone so conspicuously in the wrong directions that a lot of people think we're not good, we're evil. No, we're a mix. We're good and evil. Uh, to be aware of what's, take credit for what's good in you, but the harder part, I think, is to somehow come to grips with the part of you that is not creditable. It's always there in everybody. But also in everybody is this need for moreness to be able to go beyond the current situation we're in and do something about it. And if you can one way or another get in touch with that, Sarah, 
then uh, then you I don't know if you'll write a poem or make a movie or sell a railway track, but uh, you will uh, you you will do what I did. So that's my answer. Right, we're back here after listening to Peter and Josh and Dan and Freeman and my students. Uh, and I'm here with Ben Howard, and we're going to be talking about what we just heard. Ben is also a collaborator of Peter's on our new 9-11 series that you've hopefully read and has been reading his work for years, including his poetry. And so he is uh, uniquely suited to be commenting on uh, on what we just heard. So, uh, Ben, what are your thoughts about this uh, poetry reading and tribute for Peter Dale Scott that we just heard? Uh, I think it's so interesting. Um, in particular, I thought that the question that one of your students asked about the, that infamous incident uh, with Al McCoy that, that both Peter and Al McCoy forgot about. Um, I always think of Peter as being such a, a strong person who was who was able to sit with this very dark material uh and he he is not only willing but enthusiastic about going back to this kind of material again and again and again um but even for him there are things that are just beyond the pale that he cannot uh is not able to incorporate into his understanding of the world uh, without, I think, as he put it, without deciding to stop writing, essentially. Um, and so I just, I, I often personally struggle with this material very frequently and need to take breaks from it. And uh, it is heartening to know that um, even somebody like Professor Scott uh, is often in the same position just because of the, the gravity of these experiences and, and what this material entails. So that was that I had not, I'd certainly read about that story and, and he talks about it in American war machine quite a bit, but uh, just some of his reflections about that and what it means. Uh, I, I found very moving. Yeah, I did too. And I, it's, you can, you can deal with these things on a, on a abstract level through reading you know, and, and, and listening to people who are experts talk about these things, but seeing some of these things experiencing, I mean, that feel like, I, I've been to like Hiroshima and Nagasaki and that was a very moving experience. And that's another case where you're kind of confronted more with the reality of something that you used to be able to sort of kind of uh, in a detached way, contemplate and delve into. But then when you're there when, and when you see it, you see some of the actual, you know, destroyed, artifacts uh of, of what you know what happened in hiroshima and nagasaki for example uh you you it, it becomes more real and then to be there where they had just been there they they had surveilled you without knowing they had sent somebody out to do some sort to perpetrate some sort of violence in this case just for terrorism purposes i mean it was for the purposes of terrifying these people and then you're there afterwards I, I, I still find it a kind of hard to believe that they would both forget about it, but but uh, but they, there's no way that they were not telling the truth about it because 
Yeah. Al McCoy actually writes about it in the third edition of the Politics of Heroin. Uh, and he has a similar take on it to Peter that it's like, it's a metaphor and it, it happened, but it's also a metaphor for our, our inability to confront or acknowledge the dark matter that orders our universe in a way. Um, so I, I agree with you. That's a great, it's a great anecdote. Um, what, what else uh, jumped out at you in that, in that whole uh, conversation, that hour long conversation with Peter and Prince? Oh, well, I really appreciated the opening and, uh, and uh, we should talk about this, but the, the, um, that Joshua Oppenheimer, uh, was so thrilled to meet Professor Scott and, um, to know that that poem had such an impact because those, those movies, um, you know, I saw those when they came out and had a huge, uh, they just, both of them have a huge emotional weight to them and certainly had a big impact on me. And um, to know that uh, a piece of work like that, and also Peter's earlier sort of more prose essays on it, that they have a, uh, that, that you produce something like that and it has a, a life and that it can, it can inspire somebody to do something, uh, an impressive piece of art that itself has political consequences. Um, you know, it makes you sort of hopeful for the, what is, what is, sometimes I struggle with what is the point of talking about this? What is the point of writing this down? So few people listen, so few people care. There's such a concerted effort to, to not talk about this, but to know that this, uh, that documenting it, that, that writing it out, that explaining its import can, can, um, continue to have effects long after you may have even yourself given up on it. Um, I think was really heartening. So I, I appreciated that interaction between them, uh, quite a lot. I thought that was, uh, really, really interesting. Yeah. There's the saying that oftentimes liberals, I think complacent liberals might trot this phrase out to kind of, um, justify their own fecklessness. It's that Martin Luther King quote where he says the, the moral arc of the universe is mm. long, but it bends toward justice which is, I think, which like I was trying to say is a way sometimes for vaguely liberal people to be like, well, we're not accomplishing much, but maybe sometime something will happen. <laughs> and when that happens, I will have been lending my tepid support, you know, all these right. years. Um, but I think that there's, Peter will mention this at times also that, you know, they used to take Christians and feed them to lions in front of the Coliseum crowds for the amusement of the population. And we have come, you know, we, we, we've come some ways towards uh, enlightenment since those times, even if we seem to be in the United States since the end of world war two, really probably since the, some point in the middle of world war two, like including the bot, the dropping of the bombs, but we've been in this imperial kind of, uh, you know, Hall of Mayors, I think, to where it doesn't seem like there's much progress for good reason, or it seems that we're going in the wrong direction. But things can things can change, and there's something liberating about at least being able to to tell the truth and to bear witness to it, which I think Peter brings out in his in his work. What did you uh, What did you think of What's your feeling about coming to Jakarta in general? Like you've read you, you've read Peter's poetry at least as much as me. Um, how do you feel about the poem at this point in time? I still don't understand 
at least half of it, probably more than that. I definitely, I reread it this summer and I definitely understood a lot more of it than I did the first time I read it. But I think as a, you you know, you, you mentioned like it was written and Peter just talked about this in this clip that we just listened to, that it was written sort of at a moment of crisis in his way of processing, knowing about this and sort of being faced with, you know, the, the impetus of this knowledge nonetheless. And, um, you know, as somebody who's like dipped my toes into this world of writing about this kind of thing, I, I understand a lot better now what he was talking about. Um, but just as a, just as a document of sort of attesting to, because he talks about so much, it's, it is obviously focused around Indonesia and the events there, but in a way that just becomes a jumping off point for him to talk about, for instance, his own upbringing the people that he knew and grew up with and the the way that he and I certainly feel this as an as an american you know but but peter's certainly also because of his um the milieu that he grew up in you know he he feels and and in some ways was sort of personally implicated in a lot of these things by association with these people that he knew and and grew up with and um you know he that section that he wrote um you know, to, to see oneself, I can't remember the exact line, so I'll, I apologize, but to, to see oneself in the enemy is a kind of reassurance. I think that that's more or less what the line is. And I think that that is a very powerful idea um, to, to understand that these things are uh, not alien to us. I mean, these horrific events and this kind of, um, these, these deep political events and these parapolitics and these su- this subterfuge uh, is not alien to us. Um, it's a part of, of who we are uh, personally. And, and to think that um, a system could drive a person to do that, to contemplate. And, and, it, and, you know, I certainly have people in my family history that I've talked about that have done things akin to this and, uh, you know, relatives and, and ancestors. And um, to, to understand that and to nonetheless sort of go into it and to engage in this kind of critique, it doesn't make you friends and it's not always psychologically comforting. Um, and so that, that Peter produced this thing that is about him uh, dealing with it and, and processing all of that, um, I think is a really remarkable thing. And, and certainly, I, having returned to it a couple of times, I've gotten more out of it each time and I suspect the next time I read it, I'll get even more out of it. Yeah, well, speaking of that, I am. I need to work the deals out with uh, you know their publisher. But those transcripts of Peter and Freeman talking about, mm. uh, or I guess the audio of them talking about the poem and basically going through it from beginning to end, um, mm. I may be able. To, I'm hoping to be able to post them here, and they're fantastic. And so it will make you understand the poem much much better uh, to hear Peter go and talk about, through the whole thing. It's actually it really enhances the experience. Um, so stay tuned for that. I'm really, I'm, I'm confident that we can do that and I'm really happy to be able to do it because it hasn't been, it's got taken down and this will be a return to the, to the internet for people if I, if I'm successful. Um, I, I think that you hit on a, a key important point of this poem and it was just the fact that it points to our humanity and that to see yourself in the enemy is something that's essential. And 
even not necessarily like in a pure binary fashion of like my enemy, my friend, but just, you know, we try to, if we're on the political left, we try to remember and remind, remember ourselves and remind people of the humanity of people besides ourselves, and especially the people that are the victims of the system that, that we're in. <clears throat> but we often don't think as much about the humanity of these people who are at the top of these inhumane systems, you know, for, uh, understandably. And yet the pathologies that they exhibit are not so alien to everybody, more or less. I mean, I, as anybody who is, has a middle-class existence, okay, in the, in the U S you, uh, have luxuries, you know, things that you spend money on and that you spend time on that could be much more impactful to other people's lives. I mean, how do you justify, how do I justify buying a, you know, $60 PlayStation game when I could think about people that live on less than a dollar a day somewhere, okay? And yet I do, I do do these things. I do not live a purely Spartan existence and sending us every penny that I can to help people who probably who could be helped by small amounts of money. Right. So we, what I'm saying is I, is I and other, presumably just about everybody who's functional in the society has a way of detaching themselves from the darker implications of like the way that their position in the hierarchy is predicated upon exploitation and uh, expropriation of other people's, and in a way, that's a much more benign version, but, but not totally dissimilar from what these elites do who have to look at people as just total abstractions and who's, who are interested in maintaining a system in which they predominate over the masses of, of humanity. It's, it can be depressing or it can be illuminating depending on what you do with this recognition that you are in many ways, a part of the problem. Yeah, Peter had that great thing that he said about um, basically that we don't live in the real world. We live in the world that we can comprehend and, and understand and not have a nervous breakdown every day, essentially. And that's interesting applied to ourselves, the two of us speaking here and Peter, et cetera, you know, uh, left wing or liberal minded people, middle class people. But when you apply it to the psychopaths who run this society, what is their comprehension and how do, how do they keep an even keel such as they do? And how do they uh, not have a nervous breakdown every day such that they're able to do these inhumane things that, that uh, we've documented? Um, it's it's uh, fascinating to think about. And, uh, you know, I don't want to empathize too, too much with those at the top. But I, I do think that, um, like you said, these pathologies that they have are not alien to us. They're, they are very much in us as well. Yeah, they used to, there used to be more of them who would have it, who would lose their mind for this or that reason. Yeah. James, James Forrestal, unless he was murdered, which I, I have no opinion on that. It wouldn't surprise me, I guess. Um, Frank Wisner, right? He went crazy mm -hmm. also. James Angleton at the end of his life Angleton, was dying of yeah. cancer. And he was saying like, we're all going to hell for the things that yeah. we've done, <laughs> which yeah. I don't, I don't, I only disagree with him and that I'm not really sure there's a hell, but if, if there is, he's probably <laughs> there with Jesse Helms and, uh, or, right. uh, Je you know, well, Jesse Helms too, but Richard Helms is what I meant to say. And, uh, Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles, they're yeah. probably all sitting there talking about, you know, uh, containment and, and or something yeah. forever. They'll have to sit there forever and talk about it. 
and fire all around them. But yeah, it, it's it, it's it, you you want to say that they're they're somehow categorically different from us, but oftentimes they're you know you can actually under, wrap you can wrap your mind around the way that being detached from the consequences of it could make you into a monster. Um, so I think one other thing that might be worth mentioning uh, here is a reference in passing to the Pentagon Papers. Mm-hmm. You said that you had heard uh, something about this on Hidden History, and I'm going to talk to, uh, I think David Giglio is his name, right? And uh, yeah. He's, yeah, he's also part of the Covert Action Advisory Board. And uh, I've, I've heard of him in interviews. He seems like a great guy. I'm going to talk to him about some of this footage. But you said you heard them talking in the early 70s on KPFA about the Pentagon Papers. What do, you, what do you recall them saying about Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers? They didn't talk about Ellsberg so much, but obviously at this point in time, you know, Professor Scott and Franz Sherman and other people had been studying the war and, and um, uh, the war conspiracy had already come out by that point. Um, and obviously a big focus for Professor Scott was on CIA drug trafficking and the CIA's involvement in these kinds of things. And obviously the Pentagon Papers were mostly about the military. And so that was a lot of what they discussed is is about what the Pentagon Papers did not talk about, which is they did they did not really shed any light on the CIA's involvement. They mostly focused on the military's involvement, and um, you know they I think uh, and I and actually I think that uh, Professor Scott mentioned this. Yeah, he mentioned this in the clip we just spoke about that that you know possibly some of the reason that these documents um, you know even came to light at all. Was because there were elements uh, in the in the ruling class who who wanted the war to be done, and this was a way of doing that. Um, and I think that that came through in this recording in this at this early stage in in you know 1971. Um, so that recording is very very interesting for that reason. But I would be very curious from your point of view, having I think that you've spoken to Professor Scott about this topic. What was what was he thinking about Dan Ellsberg at the time that these papers came out? Well, this is a very interesting subject, and. I, one of the things I'm working on with Peter is a collection of essays of like the sort of classic Peter Dale Scott reader, which has some of his most important essays that haven't appeared in the collection together like this. And one of these essays is from a book called Remaking Asia, which was edited by Mark Selden, who is a... Um, Cornell professor who's retired now, or he's just a research professor now. And he's the same guy who runs uh, the Japan Focus or Asia Pacific Journal. Mm-hmm. You've seen a lot of Peter's articles there. So he's a, a guy who's been a radical historian uh, dealing with issues of, in Asia since the 70s, at least. Um, and so this book, Remaking Asia, Asia that Selden's the editor for, and Peter has one essay in it, a chapter, and it's called The Vietnam War and the CIA financial establishment. And it is it holds up very well today. And I actually use it in my dissertation. And there's and I'll even add to this when I do the, the update for the book. There's a part in it that was actually cut out by the publisher for mysterious reasons where he mentioned something about the Fed leading up to the Vietnam War that's very fascinating that I'm not going to spoil here, uh, even though it was supposed to appear in this book like 50 years ago. I'm going to, but it's the fact that it got cut out is pretty fascinating. But anyway, the relevance here is that Peter details how, as a result of the Bretton Woods system breaking down, Vietnam was risking the destabilization of the international monetary system 
and some people who were less infected with, you know, anti-communist, uh, you know, war frenzy said, we might want to step back from this uh, and allow the system to stabilize uh, because this war risks damaging this, you know, capitalist system that we've put together. And so people in finance, especially, uh, began to, uh, you know, there was a split in the establishment over the Vietnam War. This played out in the, in the Council on Foreign Relations. It's been discussed before. People realized this, that there was a split during this time period over, over Vietnam, whether it was worth continuing. And so Peter, when he wrote The War Conspiracy, I, I haven't read the actual chapter. He said that, I, I think that what Peter was saying was that in the original edition of it, there was a whole chapter on the Pentagon Papers, and that it was it, it, at least implicitly wondering whether Ellsberg had some kind of uh, what, what we today would call deep state backing or uh, motivation or impetus for his leaving of the Pentagon Papers. And Peter, if you, if you notice, he, he walks that back now, like 40 years later, or almost 50 years later, Oh my God. Um, yeah. He, he walks this back and says, no, I don't, I don't think that, but I do think that it had some impact in the way that the New York times and these other newspapers handled this, which I think is actually totally uh, plausible because it's, you look at the way that the, I mean, there hasn't been an analogous case to the Pentagon papers. Like look at what they've done to uh, Julian Assange when they actually had more to go after Ellsberg for because he right. had been, a, 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 you know, working for the government and had a security clearance, whereas, and he was right. a U.S. national. But look at how they go after Assange. I mean, it shows you how far America's gone to the right, but it also shows you that there was a confluence of uh, conflicting forces here within the establishment uh, swirling around Vietnam. And that, so what I tend to think, what I think happened was that Ellsberg is sincere about Vietnam. I mean, he was going to be Robert Kennedy's point man on Vietnam and had been briefing him in 68. And everybody knows what Kennedy was, was trying to do with the, the war. He had really turned against it. And in fact, he had told Ellsberg personally, uh, in, before the Tet Offensive, in like in 1967, Ellsberg came and told him some bad information about or bad news about Vietnam. And, and Kennedy pounds on his desk and says, we never would have gone in there if my brother had been alive. We'd have fuzzed it up like in Laos. We would have worked out some neutral solution where we put in a government and they asked us to leave, which may be the basis for what happened with No Dinh Diem in a way, at least for allowing that coup planning to take place. And I don't even know that Kennedy was the one who wanted to pull the trigger, but part of the reason they wanted that was potentially if CM wasn't going to be the guy to ask for what they wanted, which was really for the U.S. to leave, I believe, then you could put another guy in. Well, this um, whole... So, so Robert, so Ellsberg was a sincere opponent of the Vietnam War and wanted to get these these things out, thinking it would really make a difference. And initially, he wanted to get the nuclear stuff out even more. But a friend said, "You could stop a war now with this," and so he put that on the back burner. And then those nuclear documents got lost in a big hurricane. But so I, I don't. There are people out there. The reason I kind of go into these details is there are. There's a faction of the, you know, conspiracy. I don't want to, I, I know conspiracy gets used as a uh, really derogatory, derisive <laughs> propaganda term that Take would, it get leveled at, would get leveled at me. So I, I'm saying this sort of in quotation marks, but whatever you would want to call this sort of conspiracy, political conspiracy slash deep political community, whatever, 
that thinks that Ellsberg is some kind of plant. And they point out, you know, uh, they try to make arguments about him doing this or that in Vietnam with Lansdale. He admits to working for Lansdale. There's one discussion where Ellsberg even kind of entertains the possibility that, yeah, maybe he was there in Dealey Plaza. Um, And they also point to this incident with um, the mistress of a Corsican gangster and uh, Lucien Conin having to somehow intervene and uh, how Ellsberg has sort of maybe not offer the counts there conflict, but I think that that is more in the realm of like his, uh, not in this, in the realm of clandestine things as much as the realm of, um, you know, a, a guy chasing beautiful women and getting into trouble that he might not want to totally <laughs> be forthcoming about later. Best <laughs> I can tell. So I, I, I think that the, what, what Peter was saying about Ellsberg and the CIA finance angle makes sense to me and it's funny that he would have been one of his sort of skeptical guys and then and that today all these decades later they're best friends yeah yeah i mean to na- i mean you know doug valentine for instance i think has been one person who uh who obviously is very famous for for writing about the phoenix program and um you know he's definitely been skeptical of of ellsberg and the leaking of those papers for the reason that they don't include anything about any of that and um you know, there are people that allege that uh, that Dan Ellsberg would have known about things like that and that he would have known about CIA drug trafficking and things like that based on who he knew, as you mentioned, knowing Lansdale, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, this is a it's a very, t- you know, it's a difficult, a difficult world. And from my point of view, the, the guy who literally wrote the book on CIA drug trafficking in Southeast Asia, you know, if, if, if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. That's my point of view on it. But. I think his body of work kind of speaks for itself. And uh, he's always there. He's backed people in, you know, who've written about the Kennedy assassination. He's tried, he's talked about the need for a new 9-11 investigation. Uh, he, in, back in the 80s, he supported any investigations into Iran-Contra. He even tried to win support to the Christic Institute before they kind of went off the rails. Like, he's really been there. I mean, he's got an interesting position in that the liberals love him for so, you know, still, and yet, he's way more radical than, than they are. Yeah. Uh, and yet somehow yeah. he manages to have a foot in both, in both camps, which is, uh, which is an interesting feat. Okay. Well, we're going to return to some of these things. I have episodes down the road, including uh, with Dan and Peter, one more at least. Um, and uh, we're going to try to have those poems, the poetry reading and commentary with Peter and Freeman Ng that hopefully we'll be able to add a little bit more to that, uh, to those episodes. So, there's a whole lot more here with Peter that we're going to try to do. Uh, ben, thank you very much for joining us today. I want to thank J.G. Michael and Dana Chavaria for engineering this episode, Casey Moore for his awesome artwork, and Mock Orange for providing our music. That about wraps it up, friends. Let's keep minding the darkness.